Friends, take your Bibles with me this morning and open them to Mark chapter 15. In our study of the Gospel of Mark, we are nearing the end. Uh, At the end of this month, we are going to turn in December to a brief Advent series as we celebrate the incarnation of Jesus. But before then, there are some difficult things that we need to look into. The Gospel of Mark is a very quick study. It is the uh, 16 chapters, the life of Jesus, the events of Jesus' life are focused on. Other Gospels, like the Gospel of John, focus more on his teaching ministry. We have his longer teaching discourses and so forth. But the Gospel of Mark has been a whirlwind tour through the life of Jesus. If you only have the Gospel of Mark, only one Passover is mentioned, so you might assume that Jesus' public ministry lasted one year. With the Gospel of John, we see that Jesus attended three Passovers, so his ministry must have been approximately three years. But the Gospel of Mark, which is possibly based on the preaching and teaching of the Apostle Peter, it focuses on Jesus geographically. We saw him baptized in the deserts of Judea, then traveling through Samaria, he went into Galilee, where the bulk of his ministry was. And now we finish with the events of Passion Week and the death and the crucifixion, death and resurrection of Jesus there in Jerusalem. And we're in the middle of that. A couple of weeks ago, we followed the upper room by going with Jesus to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he struggled with God's will for his life. And that should sound familiar to all of us. Sometimes we think that God puts something in front of us, and we don't know if it's something that we should go through, something we should turn from, so we seek God's will. Jesus said in his humanness, he says, Lord, if it be possible, could you take that cup Away, the cup of God's wrath on sin that Jesus was called to bear for us. But remember, Jesus concluded, not my will, but your will be done. Following that, the soldiers arrive in the garden. And we saw last week that when he needed people most, Jesus was betrayed. He was abandoned. He was accused. And he was condemned. He was at the center of a storm, and it seems all the world had turned against him as he sought to do God's will for us to take your sin and mine to the cross. And that brings us to this morning. This morning we are being called to look upon the suffering of Jesus, and that's difficult. Often as you drive down the highway, you may see a small homemade cross. It might have a picture hung on it. There might be faded flowers. Or saddest of all, there might be a wind-worn and weather-worn stuffed animal. And you know that there's been an accident. And someone that somebody else loved lost their life there. Especially children. Your heart goes out to them. And it causes you to think, not only to be safe on the road, but what those people are going through as they have that empty space in their hearts. Those of us who have experienced that type of thing in life or have gone with loved ones through a wasting illness and have seen them suffer, we often don't like to think about it. It was so painful, we don't want to think about it. We put those precious and hurting memories away. But in Scripture, we're called to look at Jesus as he was at his lowest. 
as the very worst thing you or I or all of humanity have ever thought or said or done. Those sins were laid upon him and God's wrath and punishment for our sins were upon him in his time of suffering. We dare not turn away because it's there for a reason. Mark, the suffering of Jesus is recorded straightforward and matter-of-factly. Unlike some preachers who like to get very gruesome and go into all the forensic details of the suffering of Jesus, the gospel writers record the facts because the facts are important, what Jesus did for us. We're called to behold him in his time of suffering and that's what we want to do briefly this morning. The gospel of John says in verse 29 and 30, as Jesus walked to the countryside, John the Baptist and his disciples saw Jesus. He pointed to Jesus and told them, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that's what we're called to do at this portion of the Gospel of Mark. To behold him, the Lamb of God, who bears your sin and mine. Behold the Lamb of God. I have a picture here of a famous building in England. It burned down in 1936, so you can't visit that building anymore, but it was the wonder of the age when it was built in about 1851. It was called the Crystal Palace because for the first time in industrial age, they were able to make and manufacture glass in enormous tempered sheets, large sheets of glass. So taking advantage of that, the architects designed an enormous building for the Empire Exhibition. And it seemed to all be made of light. It was made of steel and iron, but most of the walls and the ceiling were all glass, tempered glass. The English people fell in love with it. And for the next 80 years, many important events and exhibitions and so forth took place at the Crystal Palace. You still know that name, though the building has been gone for almost a hundred years. In England, there was a man, a common man, a working man. And he, in his younger years, had worked at the Crystal Palace to do maintenance. When you have that many windows, you better have people on staff who wash windows. And that was his job. And there was an important event coming up. It was the year 1857. And believe it or not, as he lay near death with his family gathered around him, he told them a story. And it was the story how he met Jesus as his personal savior. It was 1857. The young preacher that everybody wanted to hear at that time, the young man named Charles Spurgeon, before he was the famous prince of preachers at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in England, he was growing in popularity and he was going to preach at the Crystal Palace. And so all hands were on deck and this simple working man, he thought he was all alone up in the rafters of the Crystal Palace with his cleaning utensils. And as he cleaned and maintained that beautiful building, out of nowhere, he heard a powerful voice speaking to him. What he didn't realize at the time was that the young preacher had arrived at the Crystal Palace before the meetings. Because in those days, there was no mechanical amplification. 
Only the power of your lungs and voice could speak to the mighty crowds. So the young preacher was walking through the crystal palace and he was checking out the acoustics. And he says, where do I want to put my pulpit with the big sounding board above it? And he walked to one place and he spoke and he walked to the other place and he spoke. Have you ever seen anybody do a sound check? Because that's what this was. What do we do? Testing, testing, one, two, three, four, testing, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, test, test, test. That's what we do. Not Charles Spurgeon. As he walked, he spoke that passage from John over and over. He would walk here and he'd say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Moving over here. Behold the Lamb. Behold the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And the workman in the rafters, he thought God was speaking to him. The sound came from all around him, that powerful voice. And it took root in his heart. And he went home and after a season of struggle with his sin that Jesus had borne to the cross, he gave his heart and his life to Christ. And years later, he told his family he was saved because of a sound check. <laughs> How happy I am that Spurgeon didn't recite the ABCs or Mary had a little lamb as speakers are off to do. Days later, over 23,000 people gathered in that crystal palace. But that day, one person had an appointment and they were called to look to the Lamb of God. I call today's message the same thing that Spurgeon did all those years ago. Behold the Lamb. As Jesus suffers for us, we're reminded that He is the Lamb of God. Our substitutionary sacrifice for your sin and mine. And the seriousness of our sin is seen in the suffering of Jesus and we dare not turn away. Behold the Lamb. We want to begin by looking at the suffering of Jesus as recorded in the Gospel of Mark. In the Gospel of Mark, as I mentioned earlier, we're in chapter 15. At this point, Jesus has been arrested. He has been put on trial first by the Sanhedrin. Then they have taken him to Pilate, the Roman governor who had the power of life and death, the power to crucify and execute criminals. Pilate, finding no fault in Jesus, wanted to release him. But at this point in the story, the people have chosen to release a murderer and a criminal named Barabbas rather than Jesus. Picking up in verse 12, reading all the way to verse 20, we begin with Pilate asking, what shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them, crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, Crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is, the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. 
they put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and they spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put on his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. The straightforward accounting of the gospel of Mark of the suffering of Jesus. The other gospels may go a little more into depth or say more things that happen on the road to Calvary as we'll see some of that more next week. But Mark is straightforward and to the point and yet in these brief verses you can imagine the humiliation, pain and suffering that Jesus is going through an entire company of hardened Roman legionnaires make sport of Jesus. These men had been away from whatever they called home probably for many years. This was not a posting in the Roman Empire that anybody desired. The Roman soldiers took out their frustration on Jesus as they beat him and tortured him. And mocked him. And this following the Roman flogging with those, uh, those terrible whips they used to tear the flesh from your back and weaken you through loss of blood. The suffering of Jesus. We know why Jesus needed to die to take our place in the cross for the wages of sin is death, but why? Why the suffering? Why humiliate him? Why strip him and spit on him and mock him? As the king of the Jews. Why? Well in part. This is one of the proofs of Jesus. Divinity. And the fact that he is our savior. And he is the Messiah. Because it is in fulfillment. Of prophecy. The fulfillment of prophecy. The suffering of the Messiah. Is foretold in enormous detail. In the Old Testament. The teachers of the. The Jewish people didn't know what to do with these stories of suffering because in their thinking, the Messiah couldn't suffer. He would be a victorious king. And yet, and yet, that's what God's word said. Jesus needed to enlighten the minds and understanding of his own disciples with the Holy Spirit for them to even understand this. Remember what it says in Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 45. At the end of the Gospel of Luke, it says of Jesus, then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. You need the Holy Spirit to open your heart and mind to what God's word says. He told them, this is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance and forgiveness of sin will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem, your witnesses of these things. They had seen prophecy fulfilled. And part of that was those suffering passages from the Old Testament. Well, when I think of the suffering of the Messiah, I always think of Isaiah chapter 53. And that is a very good example of it. For instance, in Isaiah 53, 5, it says of the Messiah, but he was pierced. For our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds were healed. 
the Lamb of God, taking away our sin. Jesus, in his suffering and death, fulfills that. But think of what Jesus himself did. Jesus, as he hung on the cross, he quoted Scripture. Many of the people standing by didn't understand that that's what Jesus did at that moment. But if you open your Bible to Psalm 22, verse 1, Jesus quotes it from the cross. Psalm 22, 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from the words of my groaning. Now why did Jesus quote the beginning of that verse? From the cross. Very simple reason. It wasn't many years ago that the chapters and verse numbers and divisions were added to our Bibles to help casual readers like us find our place in the book and to refer to it reference numbers those are a fairly modern invention what did they do in jesus time well the bible teachers of jesus time they didn't just know god's word they knew god's word most of them by the time they taught publicly beginning at 30 years of age throughout their education they had memorized the entire hebrew bible they worked on memorizing the entire Old Testament and the way they quoted it was by quoting a verse and you were expected to understand what followed that verse and the context of the verse. So Jesus is actually quoting and referring to the entire psalm. And Psalm 22 is an amazing passage because in this psalm we see, we see a man abandoned. God has turned his face away from him. He's cursed because he's hanging crucified. In Psalm 22, a little further down as an example of these suffering passages, we see in verse 16 to 18. I'll begin before what it says on the screen. Verse 15. From the crucified man's point of view, my strength is dried up like a pot shirt. That's a broken piece of a clay pot in the dust. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. Remember Jesus crying out, I'm thirsty. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and they cast lots for my clothing. It's Jesus' crucifixion. And he suffers to fulfill this as proof of who he is and what he is doing for us. He's the suffering servant. Not only is it in fulfillment of prophecy, I believe in part it serves a very important function to reveal to us something about who Jesus is today as the great high priest. Behold the Lamb of God, your great high priest we often forget today especially in protestant churches what a priest is called to do as we see them in the old testament the priestly function is basically as a go-between an intermediary between god and man the priest represents his people his fellow men to god the priest takes the sins of the people into the holy of holies performs sacrifice 
perhaps at the altar over and over, but he takes their sin to God to find forgiveness. But he also takes the word and promises and challenges of God to the people to reveal it to them. He goes back and forth between God and man. Human priests did this to an extent, but all of them were pointing to the great high priest that would be fulfilled in Jesus. He represents humanity perfectly because he was born of a virgin. He's one of us. He's a man. But he reveals God perfectly to us because he is God incarnate, the second person of the Trinity. He's Jesus, the eternal Son of God, to us. And part of understanding that he understands, if you get what I'm saying, is his suffering. We see that clearly spelled out for us in the book of Hebrews, writing to Hebrew Christians. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, there's a verse that is a little bit confusing if we're honest. It says in Hebrews 2.10, In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation, that is Jesus, perfect through suffering. It was fitting that God should make Jesus perfect through suffering. Not just Jesus, but Jesus, the author of our salvation, our Savior, perfect through suffering. Now that's a troublesome passage. Hear me now. Isn't he the perfect son of God? Isn't Jesus already perfect? What could be added to one who is complete and perfect and doesn't change from day to day in every way? Well, understand what the author of Hebrews is telling you here. Jesus is not made perfect in his nature. He's already perfect. But through his suffering, he's the perfect high priest. He becomes that for us because now we know what he has done for us, and we see it. This is exactly what that author of Hebrews spells out for us a little bit later in the book. In Hebrews chapter 4, for instance, Hebrews 4, beginning in verse 15, we read, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Do you get what they're saying there? We have Jesus who has been tempted. That word is also translated tested. He's been tested in every way. And we've seen it in Scripture. His suffering fulfills everything that we may face. Jesus faced temptation. Not little ones day by day. He was tempted by Satan himself after fasting for 40 days in the desert. He experienced temptations to the height and depth that you and I can't comprehend, yet without sin. He never succumbed to temptation. And he was tested, physically tested, and suffered, and bled, and died for us. Jesus experienced it all. And being made perfect is not that he is any more perfect, but he's the perfect high priest because we look at him and we say, Jesus understands. Whatever I'm going through, whatever good news, hard news, bad news from a doctor I may get, 
I can trust Jesus because he understands. He's faced harder things than I'm ever going to face as he took my sin to the cross. As he stepped into that praetorium and was a plaything to the Roman legionnaires. I'll never face anything close to what Jesus faced. But we now know how much he loved us and what a perfect high priest he is for us. That's one of the reasons his sufferings recorded there for us. Finally, we conclude with the fact that his suffering, he becomes the perfect example for us. Whatever is recorded in scripture is there for your benefit, to build you up, to edify you, including the suffering of Jesus. He, in his suffering, becomes the perfect example for you and I. He's the perfect example, for instance, of selflessness, of selfless living, of putting the well-being and needs of others before yourself. I love selfless people. They're always thinking of others. You always feel loved and accepted around them because you're important to them. In fact, you're more important to them than they're important to themselves. They just how they live. And when people are like that, we love them because they're like Jesus. They've taken after him. And in his suffering, he reveals to us how much he loves us. In Mark, earlier in the Gospel of Mark, we saw in chapter 8, beginning in verse 34, it says, Then he called the crowd to himself along with his disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. Jesus said, if you want to be like me, if you want to follow me, take up your cross and follow. Jesus uses the example of his sacrificial death for us as an example to follow. And that's not that you are called to go to a cross, but you are called to be selfless like Jesus. To follow his example of selfless living. In Peter, we see another example of that. Of that attitude that puts other first, others first. In 1 Peter chapter 4, we see that Jesus is our example of a God-first attitude. We've heard all of the old sayings. And they're old sayings because they're true. That your outlook determines your outcome. That attitude is so important. And Jesus' attitude was always one that put God first. The Apostle Peter reflecting on that in 1 Peter chapter 4. He says, therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. Because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. As a result, he does not live the rest of his life of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. You see, Jesus in this suffering, beginning in the garden, going to the cross, he lived out his words, not my will, but your will be done. Big and small, every day, we're faced with a choice. My will or God's will comes up again and again. We often don't even realize we're making that choice, but we need to become mindful of this as we follow Jesus. Today, Lord, my will 
or your will and grow in that area. Also, Jesus, in a couple of passages, very quickly, he's our example of endurance, what he endured in his suffering. The Apostle John, he was the only one who grew to be great in age. But even in his old age, he was deemed a threat to the Roman Empire, and he was exiled from Asia Minor, modern Turkey, to an island off the coast of Greece, all the way across the sea from where the church he was, he was serving in at the time. And that's where God revealed the revelation to him. Something he says in Revelation chapter 1, John says this in verse 9. He says, I, John, your brother and companion. He's identifying with us Christians. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. That's amazing. He's lived a long life and he knows what our birthright as Christians are in part. It includes suffering. It includes suffering, but also patient endurance. We grow as believers through this suffering. So John wasn't surprised or even dismayed that he was imprisoned on an island. But he said, we share in common the suffering of Jesus, the kingdom of God, and with it, patient endurance as followers of Christ. Now, the apostle Paul was no stranger to a jail cell. Think about it. These early Christians, these great men of God, these men and women who followed Jesus, they were imprisoned. They were tortured. They were fed to wild beasts in the arena. They had a difficult time, but they faced it with joy and confidence. How? They understood that this was part of what they were called to do as they put Jesus and God's will first in their lives. The Apostle Paul, writing upon his one of his imprisonments, he, he tells them, he says, don't be, don't be worried about me. This is serving an important role in his life. Even Paul knew he needed to continue to grow. In 2 Corinthians, Paul opens the book of 2 Corinthians, that letter to the Corinthian church, chapter 1, beginning in verse 8. Paul says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered. He doesn't just share the successes, also the hard parts. The hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we've set our hope that he will continue that he will continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayers. Then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted us in answer to the prayers of many. Did you see that? Paul says we grow through suffering and we grow to depend on God. Patient endurance comes because you're not depending on your resources. I run out of resources very fast. If you have to depend upon your health, Good luck. If you have to depend upon your bank account, I pity you. If you have to depend upon the things of this world, 
and the people of this world who eventually will leave you one way or another, you're not going to make it. But if you depend on God, you'll never be disappointed. That's why these men and women of faith were able to face the challenges of being salt and light in the early Roman Empire till this very day with joy and with patient endurance. And finally, to him who overcomes, to him who have faith, has faith to overcome the difficulties that we face. How are we able to do it? Jesus is our example, our ultimate example of overcoming faith. And we wrap up with this short passage. It's familiar to us though. The Apostle Paul writes, And of this gospel, and of this gospel I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I am suffering as I am. Yet I am not ashamed because I know whom I have believed and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. He has my heart and my soul in his hands. Oh friends, the body will grow sick or grow old and die. But when you trust Jesus... He's the ultimate example of overcoming faith because He who suffered Himself and we follow Him. We know that <clears throat> He has our best interest in mind and that one day when the body fails, we'll see Him face to face. He has kept you safe, your soul. You'll be with Him through all eternity. Oh, God's people have faced a lot over the years because of this very thing. We know whom we have believed. We're persuaded. He's able to keep that which we've committed into His keeping against that day. That day when all mankind will stand before the judge. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Some to their eternal regret because they did not trust Him in this life. But others with great joy. As the worship team joins me on the platform for our closing hymn, let's close our time in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, it hurts us as people to see anyone suffer. But oh Lord, how keen that pain is when it's those we love when it's a wife sitting by the bedside of her husband of many years, as he groans in pain and breathes his last breath, as a parent or a grandparent sees the child they love so much in pain, Lord, suffering is something we normally do anything to avoid and we don't reflect on. But as we behold the Lamb of God who takes away our sin, Lord, part of that is understanding the depth of His love and what He went through for us. And reflecting on His suffering, Lord, we too grow in our faith knowing that as we face tests and temptations and challenges, as we too suffer, Lord, that Jesus holds us in His hands. And Lord, all that is important is kept safe until that day when we confess Him as Lord face to face. Lord, till then, give your people endurance and patience and hope 
and faith. We put our faith in Jesus who suffered for us. We ask all of this in his name. Amen.